Thank you, Matt. Thanks. There we are. Steve, thank you so much for that powerful testimony. Really powerful. Awesome. Thank you. Good morning, NBC. It's good to be here with you today. Um, got a little cough, so hopefully I won't cough into this too much if I do. It's such a, you know, I'm worried about that, but it's like such a silly concern in a sense. <laughs> but uh, here we are. It's good to be here, and uh, special thanks to PG and Vicky, and greetings if you are on the live stream. We're praying for you guys, and uh, very grateful for your guidance, and your wisdom, and your leadership, and uh, take all the time you need to heal. We've got this, I think, right? We've got this. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to thank you guys for praying for uh, our ministry, the fundraiser I talked about a couple weeks ago. Thank you to everybody that came and gave so we can uh, build this ministry house to host uh, international students for hospitality events. Um, turning around the st statistic that 75% of internationals don't see an American home on the inside while here. And speaking of missions, uh, most of you know that I'm a missionary with a youth with a mission here in Madison. Uh, I've been doing that for the last 17 years. And the world is changing. Uh, it's becoming exceedingly difficult to do missions in certain nations. Um, and a variety of nations are actually shutting down any mission work that they find and are kicking out those missionaries. We're going through that with our organization. But what's interesting about this is that these nations are sending their top students here to Madison, to the United States, to be trained. And so campus ministry is really, in a sense, the new frontier when it comes from mission to missions. These guys are longing for relationship and friendship and uh, are oftentimes very open to this faith that is forbidden where they're from. And so with that, I want to invite you, because we do have an event coming up next Saturday. Uh, it's called the International Christmas Party. It's a Christmas party for international students and scholars. And we're still looking for some people that can be table hosts. I'm actually at a wedding, and some of our leaders are at a wedding that day. But uh, it is happening. And table host means that you eat a great meal, and you get to sit with some international students and scholars from nations that oftentimes we can't even go to anymore as, as uh, Christians or missionaries for that purpose. And uh, we have some questions that you get to ask them. So it's really easy. You're just there to host. So if you're interested in that, talk to me after the service and I can connect you with, with some people. It's a wonderful opportunity to just celebrate Christmas and the true meaning of Christmas with people that uh, really have no idea. So that's done. Advertisement. Okay, good. Vicky said, I can speak on whatever I want. It's dangerous. Hi, Vicky. <laughs> okay, now let's transition to our message today. Uh, the message I'm preaching today has become sort of a life message for me. Uh, I've been teaching on this topic of spiritual warfare all over the world for the last about 10 years. And I've seen God do some amazing things in people and bring about amazing testimonies of freedom, a deeper understanding of identity, a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ in people that have gone through this. And just this last month, God actually took me much deeper in this, and that's kind of what I want to share with you, not kind of, that's what I want to share with you today, because I think it's also going to help you go deeper. The first thing that's helpful to understand when it comes to spiritual warfare is that, you know, to know that we are in a battle. That's the first key to victory. When I came here in 2001, I would see this a sports event on TV. Uh, it was called American Football. 
And I would look at that and I would go like, what is going on? Why would people watch this? This is slow. This is boring. Don't stone me yet. Okay, it's a story. Uh, and I just didn't understand it. Now imagine Matt comes to me or somebody and says, hey, Manuel, you want to play some football? I was like, yeah, sure. I play some football. You know, I mean, I've been playing the real football all my life. You call it soccer over here. So I play some football. He's like, great. So take this ball and run it down the line. And when you get into what we call the end zone, you get six points. I was like, six points? That's great. I mean, no matter how great of a trick shot I do to get this ball into the you know, rectangle where there's the goalkeeper and stuff, I only get one point. I get six points for running down this ball? He's like, yeah, you get six points. You want to try it? Yeah. So I take the ball and I run. And out of nowhere, come these guys with no neck and they tackle me, throw me on the ground. There I am, hurt and confused. And then Matt comes to me and goes like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you this little detail about defensive lines. And, uh, but believe me, people do this for fun. <laughs> so, I mean, this is absolutely crazy. But if Matt is a good coach and he can explain to me how the game of football works and all the different you know, groups that you have, uh, I can play the game and maybe even play to win it, right? So the key to victory is knowing that I'm in a battle, that there's other teams, that there's schemes and strategies to stop me, but that a good coach also has a strategy to actually get me to the end zone. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? Okay, so this is the same in our Christian walk. In Ephesians 6, verse 11, Paul says this, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. So there is this thing called an armor that God has provided, you know, kind of like in football where you get the pads and all that. Um, and there is an opposing team that has schemes and strategies to stop you, right? And oh, I didn't make this point. In Christianity, sometimes we say this, hello, welcome to the family of God. So glad you're here. Now run the good race right? Or fight the good fight. It's like a word we use. And we go like, yeah, okay, let's do this. And you run the good race. And then the enemy comes and maybe tackles you. And you go like, what just happened? And it's so confusing and painful that sometimes we don't even know if you want to be Christians anymore. You know, when the Dalai Lama comes to town, a lot of people get interviewed. Hey, why are you here? Oh, yeah, I used to be a Christian, but God didn't really work for me. That's, that's what people will say. But maybe it has something to do with not really understanding how all this works, Right? So you put on the full armor of God to stand against the devil's schemes. And in this context, it's clear that Paul is trying to give them a picture, the Ephesians, who he's writing to. Throughout the whole letter of the Ephesians, he keeps saying, you are in Christ. I want you to understand that God predestined you to be in Christ. This was something he had always planned for you, that you would be his child and be adopted into his family. That's why he created human beings, right? And he says, in the end, let me give you a picture of what it means to be in Christ. It's kind of like having an armor that God provides so that you can do this. Not out of yourself, but because of what God has provided. Okay? So when Paul wrote to the people living in Ephesus, he wrote to people living in great spiritual oppression. So Ephesus was the center of witchcraft. Back then, uh, the worship there had to do with witchcraft. And when 
people came into the church, they would actually leave behind their witchcraft books, uh, burn them, and people think that in today's economy, it would have been worth millions of dollars. So you can see a lot of people came from really dark arts into the church, right? Also, in Ephesus was Artemis, and Artemis was a goddess that was worshipped through ritual prostitution. So a lot of Ephesians used to be ritual prostitutes. A very highly spiritual thing combined with this witchcraft, right? And so they become Christians, and here they are living in houses that have ceremonial curses put on them every year. They uh, have people put curses on them because they left the dark arts. The same curses they put on people, and when they did, they would get sick or die. So they have this fear. Can we even make it? And Paul writes to them, says, look, you are in Christ. Let's look at this passage here because uh, it gives this uh, wonderful picture, Sivas. Let's go to this next slide. It says, I pray also, Paul says to the Ephesians, or in this letter, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened <coughs> in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. A lot of strong words there, right? And it's incomparably great power for us to believe. They're afraid of power, right? They're afraid of spiritual power. And they say there's an incomparably great power for us who believes. And that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Where? A little bit above powers and authorities. No, far above. All rule and authority, right? Power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So what does he say about Christ? Remember, these people are in a context of power. These people are in the context of spiritual darkness, trying to figure out where do I stand? Is Christ strong enough to shield me from these spiritual uh, attacks that come against me? And so what does Paul say? Christ is where? Far above all powers and authorities, right? Seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on in, verse, in chapter 2 and he says this in verse 6. He says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Where is Christ? What does it mean when it comes to power? What does it mean when it comes to being afraid of these curses? It means that as you're in Christ, there is a protection God has given you. Amen? It's very powerful when you live in that kind of a context and powerful for us as we look at that. Because when Paul then talks about the armor, they say, oh, I get it. This is like a picture you're giving me so I can see that I truly am protected. Right? Now, that's all nice and good, but uh, what does that mean for my daily life here? How does that make a difference? How do I not become one that has to say, God didn't work for me, so I'm doing something else now? We see the apostles making such a big deal everywhere in Scripture about standing against the enemy or resisting the devil or not giving the devil any room or, you know, talking about that they're not unaware of his schemes. Because he has schemes. Even though you're in Christ, he's going to try to make attempts. He's going to try to deceive you to make you believe that you're not there, that you're maybe 30% Christian, maybe 25%, depending on the day. 
that God is mad at you, that He does not want you, that this goes for everyone at NBC except for you. He is a liar. And He tries to convince us that God does not love us, that God somehow is mad at us, or that you know, we should not trust God and His love for us. You know, maybe He tries to make us believe that God is not a good coach, but that He wants you to fail publicly in front of everybody. Did God really say? It's the first thing he said when he talked to humans for the first time. Did God really say? You can't believe that. So one key to recognizing schemes of the enemy is to ask yourself one simple question. And people get confused by this, so let's see if, if I can make this clear. If I were the devil, what would I do to myself to destroy me? If I were the devil, what would I do to myself to destroy me? Or whatever works, right? It's going to be different for me than it is for Matt. It's going to be different for Steve than it is for James. Whatever works. But when you answer that question and you think about the things that continually trip you up, this question actually becomes the key to strategies and schemes that he may have against you. Are you with me? Right, let's talk about this a little bit more. I want to talk about one battlefield that uh, we deal with, which is our mind or our thoughts. Okay, and with that, we have a scripture here in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish, to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So this idea or this battlefield of the mind is a huge part of our warfare. Uh, the enemy has discovered that if you think wrongly on earth, your effectiveness will be greatly diminished. This is not about who's going to heaven or hell, who's going to heaven, but this is about your effectiveness right here on earth, right? You can believe all kinds of crazy stuff and not be able to receive God's love, and that's, of course, the goal, right? So spiritual warfare is discerning what some of these lies are, <laughs> sorry about that, that I may believe. Uh, let me ask you this. How many of you are Harry Potter fans here? It's not a trick question, okay, a few of us. How many of you are like... Harry Potter is from the devil. I can't believe you even just said this name here. Okay, great. All right, there's a few of you. Good. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of literature that I'm not a big fan of, but my family is. So, you know, I'm, I'm apparently in the Hufflepuff house. My daughter says, how can you be Hufflepuff? You, you, you yell a lot. I was like, I yell a lot. Okay, more to that later. <laughs> um, so I haven't read the books, but I, I love the story uh, because in the end, the evil cannot be overcome because he doesn't understand love doesn't get more biblical than that, right? The evil, cannot, the evil cannot overcome good. That's what it is. He cannot overcome good because he doesn't understand love and sacrifice. It's exactly the story of the Bible, right? Right there in this uh, book. But um, so those of you that are fans know the story really well. Those of you that don't, um, see if you can follow me here. This is going to be a point, a strong point in the sermon. Okay, uh, so in Harry Potter, there's uh, Harry, who's of course this talented boy who goes to wizardry school, 
And he has friends, Juan and Hermione, who are his best friends and kind of help him with everything he does. And there is, of course, an evil power. His name is he who may not be named. But, you know, it's Lord Voldemort. I'm not afraid. I'm in Christ. I can name that name, right? Uh, and this evil Lord, Lord Voldemort, he has hidden his soul in little items called horcruxes. Uh, if you kill his soul, it's easy to destroy him, but he has hidden them in seven horcruxes, right? You had your hands up, you're a Harry Potter fan. Okay, good. That's what's happening. Okay, and so at one point in the story, this was in the movie. I had to go to the movie. Actually, one time my wife dressed me up as Professor Snape when a book came out, and I had no idea who that even was. And people were like, are you good or evil? I was like, she's like, don't smile. I was like, okay. <laughs> Crazy. Cra I know. I know. Trust me, we're going to get through this. Anyway, so in this story, they find one of these horcruxes, and it's Harry and Hermione and Ron who have to carry it somewhere to destroy it. And every time the person that carries this thing has these nasty thoughts that come against themselves, and this heaviness, this spiritual heaviness, so they can only carry it so far and then have to give it to somebody else. And then time comes to open this thing and destroy it. Okay, and so this is what happens. And by the way, Ron has a crush on Hermione. Uh, this is important for this. So this, you know, Harry speaks in tongues. That's what it looks like to me. And this thing opens, and this evil power comes out. And here's what it says. It says, speaking to Ron, who has a sword to destroy it, it says, I have seen your heart, and it is mine. I have seen your dreams, Ron Beasley, and I have seen your fears. Least loved by your mother who preferred a daughter. Least loved by the girl who prefers your friend. Taylor made scheme against him, right? And then Harry in the distance is screaming, Ron, kill it! Because is he going to believe the lies that are so personal, or is he going to believe his friend, right? And then in this vision, he sees Harry, and he says, we were better without you, happier without you. And Hermione says, who he has a crush on, she says, who could look at you compared to Harry Potter? What are you compared to the chosen one? And then Harry says in this vision, your mother confessed that she would have preferred me as a son. And then Hermione says, who could look at you? You are nothing, nothing, nothing compared to him. And then in this picture, they start making out. It's kind of cheesy. But so Ron then takes this sword and he runs towards Harry and it feels like, wow, he's just betrayed him. This is the truth. He's going to kill him. And he destroys the Horcrux. You go, okay. And when I watched this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like such a good picture of spiritual warfare and how the enemy speaks to us. Taylor made lies to keep us from relationship with God and with each other. So what thoughts does the enemy perpetually use against you? Maybe these thoughts, you are not good enough, you don't belong here. If people really knew your thoughts, they would reject you, right? Or maybe the other way around where it says, everyone here is a loser. If they only gave you a shot at running this show, you know, it'd be so much better. Or maybe even a little bit darker, it would be better if you had never been born. We were happier without you. 
you killed yourself right now, nobody would even miss you. You know, or don't trust this person, they're not your friend, you can't trust them. Do you see what I'm saying? These things come up in our mind. Where do those things come from? What is the goal of these things and what is the consequence of these things if we embrace them and believe them? You know, many times when you're looking to step up into something, maybe at church, to serve or to pick up a role, these thoughts come to your mind. There's 350 people here at NBC. Well, maybe 100 people at NBC. They could do this better than me. Let them do it. See how that would be such a great strategy to make sure that nothing ever happens around here? What are these things that we're dealing with? You know, and then there's this other strategy of the enemy called condemnation. Condemnation, it's the thought that you're not pleasing to God or that you're not you're spiritual enough. The thought that God could not possibly love you. The devil is an accuser, and accusation keeps us from God's love. Talk a little bit more about that when we finish here, okay? I want to talk about one other battlefield here, and that's the battlefield of attitudes or uh, negative emotions. The Bible calls this the heart. The heart is the center of emotions in uh, the Bible. And I want to talk a little bit about that because the uh, apostles talk about how emotions or attitudes can give room to the enemy. We have this idea in Proverbs 4.23, where it says, Keep your heart diligently, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Keep your heart diligently. Watch over your heart. Right? Uh, we got a few scriptures about this. One is in Ephesians uh, 4, 26 and 27. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Somehow these things seem to go together. It's the same thought, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger while you're still angry. Because if you do, you may be giving the devil a foothold. Or in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11, we find this idea about forgiveness, which has to do with attitudes, right? Paul says this, and this is kind of a humorous passage to me because there's a lot of forgiving there. Can't miss the point, right? It says, if you forgive anyone, Paul says, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Do not give the devil a foothold. It seems to suggest that attitudes can give place to the devil in our lives. In Ephesians, it, talk, it talks about not letting the sun go down while you're angry. Um, in other words, you will be angry. That's okay. And maybe even though you're in the Hufflepuff house, you yell sometimes. <laughs> uh, but you're like, what are we talking about? That was from earlier. Uh, but... You have to deal with it. It's kind of like you can't help getting a sweaty body, right? But you can take a shower. You can't help the birds from flying over your head, as Martin Luther said, or Martin Luther, as we call him here. But you can stop them from building a nest. It's that idea. You can't choose your emotions. They come to you, but you can choose what you do with them. Okay, we've got this idea in First Peter 5. 6 to 9 that I want to talk about for a little bit here. It says, You humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. What an interesting passage, right? He's going around like a roaring lion seeking someone he can devour. And I want to tell you a little something about a roaring lion. Maybe some of you have heard the story here before. I think I spoke about it in 2009. It's a long time ago. But um, when I was in Zimbabwe in 2005, we were there for an outreach during the height of the famine there. And so we didn't do a whole lot of ministry because it was a difficult time for the nation. But we were there, and one morning I woke up, and we had a quick meeting. And the leader said, oh, by the way, today we have lion alarm or lion alert, so uh, be careful. I was like, lion alert, what's that? Like, let me tell you. That means that a lion has been sighted. There was a lion sighting down by the bus station, and we just got to be a little careful today. And then the staff, the Zimbabwean staff, she turns to me. She had never said a word until this point. She's like, just so you know, the lions are very shrewd. They will roar really quietly when they're close, so you think they're far away. And then they jump on you. <laughs> I was like... Thank you. I appreciate the warning. <laughs> so I decided that I would just stay in my room for the day. And, uh, you know, my room, the way it was set up was my room was about here where I am on the stage. And uh, the bathroom was about where the real bathroom is over here. So a little bit far away, but not inside a building, but outside of a, in a compound, right? <laughs> so... I was like, I'm just going to stay here and read the Bible and pray for Zimbabwe today. That's what I'm going to do. You know, of course, before I heard about Lion Alert, I had a you know, good cup of coffee. No matter where you are, you always have a good cup of coffee, right? And uh, a good cup of coffee tends to, uh, you know, go nature's way, and you eventually have to go and empty your bladder, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody, everybody does that? Yeah. So, yeah, I go outside of my room. I was like, Lion Alarm, got to pee. This is really awkward, and I was like, I can make it. I'm going to run. It's like, no, I can't. And in my mind, I have this picture that says in a newsletter, a uh, newspaper, German eaten by lion in Zimbabwe. <laughs> so I can't do it. And so this fear within this lion alarm made me do something that, you know, doesn't make for the most brilliant missionary story. Basically, I just went behind my house and I peed there and then quickly snuck back in. Yes. There you have it. A roaring lion is a picture of someone that inspires fear. Okay, that's what Paul, I think, is trying to say here, even though I don't think he ever went to Zimbabwe, but that's what makes me think of that. So the devil loves to inspire fear and anxiety. He roars at you so that you know, he can get you to make decisions based on feelings alone. I can't tell you how many times I meet with people uh, when they're about to make a decision and they say things like this, yeah, I just don't have peace about it. That's fine, you know, but it's a good strategy because in our time, we have come to believe that what's right and wrong and what we should be doing is dependent on how it feels. Are you with me? So just because you don't have peace about it, we 
make that to mean this is just not for me. I don't have peace about it. But really, we have to ask this question. Do I not have peace because God isn't giving me peace? Or do I not have peace because the lion is roaring at me? Maybe something like this, you know, maybe... Yeah, I, I like this invitation Manuel gave about this international Christmas party. I think I'm going to go there. What if, you know, you cannot talk to the people because you don't understand their foreign accents? Oh, what if I can't talk to them? What if you don't like the food and here they are all eating happily and you're like, mm, how's your dinner? <laughs> yeah, what if I don't like the food? You know, stuff like that. I just, I'm... Hey, you want to come to this international Christmas? I just don't have peace about it. See how that works? So you can be submitted to Christ. You can be a Christian. You can be going to heaven. But if you make your decisions based on how you feel alone, guess who's running your life? All right. As we're finishing up here, I hope that this sermon has been helpful for you to recognize maybe some schemes or strategies of the enemy against you and your relationship with God and with each other. But what do we do with all this? And this is where what God has been showing me over the last month or so comes into play. Um, I used to think that I needed to, you know, take bad emotions when they came up and just shove them aside. Getting really angry, but no, I'm not angry because I'm not supposed to be angry. Right? Or, you know, take every thought captive because after all, the enemy is trying to destroy me and has a strategy against me. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But honestly, I try to do that by myself. This bad thought is coming up. Nope, I'm not going to think this right now. I did not allow God to help me with this. It sounds funny, but it's true. You know, somehow I had come to believe that these are personal battles, right? Fighting personal battles. So I have to fight them personally without God's help. See, see it's very true, but it's just slightly off. You know, I got to show God somehow how good of a spiritual warrior I am. I can't let these things get to me because the enemy is trying to destroy me. That's all true. I also didn't make any differentiation between things the enemy would directly speak to me, which happens sometimes, and thoughts that were negative patterns in my life simply because of brokenness and trauma. Right? It's quite the difference. And, you know, I used to think that it doesn't really matter whether these things come from the enemy or they come from my trauma and brokenness because, after all, they're raised up against God's thoughts about me, and so they have to go. Also true. But with that, there was this lie that I believe that somehow in who I actually am, I am not acceptable to God. And maybe you feel the same way. And uh, we read this uh, book in one of our programs that I run called The Gift of Being Yourself by David Banner, who is a, a Christian psychologist. And he talks about how there are things in ourselves that we do not like, you know, or we believe they should not be there, and so we suppress them. We're like, nope, this is not part of me, and we just pretend they're not there. But he says if you do that, in good psychological tradition, 
It just will become stronger. It's not just going to go away. And so he suggests that the only way to truly be yourself, as God intended you to be, is to recognize these negative things in yourself and then bring them to God. God loves you. He loves me the way we are. He doesn't love us just for what we could be. Amen? We agree on that. This is a very powerful truth. There's nothing you and I could ever do to make God love us more. And I know I've heard that all my life. I'm like, yeah, 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 I get it. That's cool. But recently I've come to understand that on a deeper level, no matter how many thoughts I take captive, say, nope, this is not right. I'm analyzing my thoughts. This is not good, which is very good. But if I do it on my own or to feel like I have to do something to then be able to come to God and say, look, God, how wonderful of a person I am. I can never truly be myself. He knows all the junk in us. And he sees very clearly, though I may try to hide it and pretend it's not there. You know, the thoughts and emotions that I'm afraid of. Or, you know, the feeling that I have to deal with them before I can go and spend time with God. Are you with me? So how do we do this? There are many ways to do this, bring these to God. And one that has been very helpful for me is this simple prayer, a prayer that has been uh, going on for uh, centuries in Christian tradition, which is a meditative prayer that says, Here I am in the presence of the Trinity. Here I am in the presence of God. Trinity is the definition of love, right? A perfect union that has been going on for all of eternity that God invites us in that Jesus made a way for us to be a part of, part of this circle of love. Here I am in the presence of the Trinity. Here I am with my anger. Here I am with my unforgiveness, with my jealousy. Here I am with my lust. Thank you, God, for loving me. And rather than pushing it aside, you bring it to God. And he welcomes you. And that's where we're changed, not by pushing it away, but by seeing the acceptance of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So bring all that you are, just be in the presence of the Lord. Just like Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes when God came and walked in the garden, God called to them, where are you? Why did he call to them? He knew exactly where they were, and he knew exactly what had happened, right? He was inviting them to come to him anyway and say, God, we really messed this up. But in the same way, God is calling to us as we're hiding our true self. Where are you? Why? He knows why we're hiding and that we're hiding. But he wants to embrace us in love and lets us know that which we cannot believe, that he truly loves us and that Jesus came to show that so powerfully and make the way back to the Father. Amen? So Paul puts it this way. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long And high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
This is God's heart for us. No matter what your battles are today, God loves you. He's calling to you, where are you? And you may answer, I'll be right there. I'm just going to fix myself and then I'll be there. <laughs> Clean up this mess I made over here. No, friends, let's run to him. Here I am in the presence of the Trinity. I bring all I am and I thank you for loving me. Amen. Worship team, you can come. We all have this hole in which we desire to be totally known and totally loved. We often seek from that from people first. But today, I think Manuel reminded us that we have to know that from him first. There's no project he's waiting for us to complete that we can then show up and get the satisfactory, yep, you'll be loved now. We're loved, we're totally loved. Thank you for sharing that, Manuel. Hope it touched your heart. We have the past world team that's available to pray. Judah's gonna lead us in a song here before we close. I'd encourage you to stand and respond to the Lord and worship wherever you are today wherever you find yourself in your relationship with him. Open yourself up. Ask him for more. He's there. He said once, you have not because you ask not. Ask him in. Invite him into all those places. Let's worship him.